Welcome to The Real Enneagram, A Spiritual Quest, brought to you by the Institute for Conscious Being. Join us as we experience the vital teachings of Enneagram expert Dr. Joseph Howell, clinical psychologist and author of Becoming Conscious, The Enneagram's Forgotten Passageway. Relax as you are taken beyond personality typing to The Real Enneagram, The Spiritual Development of the Soul. Welcome back to a podcast that's sponsored by the Institute for Conscious Being. Today we are we have with us Dr. Joseph Howell and myself, Erica Jobes. Welcome, Dr. Howell. I'm glad to be here, Erica. Thanks for the invitation. Well, we're glad you're here. Today we get to record our podcast from a very special location. We are in Swanee, Tennessee at St. Mary's Retreat. We just finished a conference. Uh, entitled The Power of the Enneagram, and we had a fantastic conference. What did you think? It was a wonderful uh, conference with a lot of um, testimonials at the end of people saying that they went away with great amounts of insights. Yes, that was the feedback that I got as well. And it's amazing. I don't know how many conferences I've been to so far, but I always learn a lot as well. So thank you Mm -hmm. for your leadership in that. So today, we want to continue our talk about the Enneagram and basically the soul. And in order to do that, we've kind of wanted to go through some of the fundamentals of the Enneagram, and we've gone through the different centers, and we've discussed last week the levels of consciousness, and then this week, we want to talk about wings. Yes, the wings. The wings um, are the two numbers on either side of our ego type. For example, if I'm an ego type six, I will have a seven wing and I will also have a five wing. Those are the two energies that uh, in combination actually make up who I am at six. Well, I love your example of uh, our Enneagram types being a lot like The portal that you enter a large football stadium? Yes. Tell us about that. Well, of course, you've got these nine Enneagram types. And a lot of people say, well, how can a human being fit themselves into one type? Um, There are many, many different types of human beings. But there are general types. And it's just as if you were to enter a football stadium, you would have to go through one of several main gates. And then once you go through that portal or that gate, in that section, there are literally hundreds of seats or chairs uh, that make up that section. And if need be, folding chairs can be put up. So the issue is not that you are typed into being a stereotype. But the issue is that the major nine types are major forms of energy that is carried by the people who enter life through that portal. Interesting. So if you have one of those nine energies and you enter through one of those portals, when you take your seat that we're speaking of, Mm -hmm. it's influenced by what? It's influenced by... The depth of one's fixation, it's influenced by the depth of one's passion, one's virtue, one's avoidance, how trapped they are, 
And it's also influenced by the wings and the direction of your arrow that you're taking. And it's also affected by a person's subtype. All of these we will be speaking of in subsequent podcasts, but we're laying the groundwork right now. But those are a lot of factors that determine one's uh, unique chair or seat in the stadium, aren't they? They are, and I think the the theory of the wings and, you know, having a dominant wing, uh, it really helps us to understand how unique each one of us really is yes. and how maybe two Enneagram type twos look totally different. Yes, they do. Everyone is different because that's the way the world really is. That's reality. And the Enneagram really just reflects reality and a little bit of the construction behind reality. And it's not really creating new reality. It's a reflection of what is. It's, it's a vocabulary yeah. that explains what is universal truth. Yeah, and it's a map because it shows you which direction to go if you are going to make sense of your life and actually be able to deal with your blind spots and not be overtaken by them. It also shows you the map to disintegration. It, it, it tells you exactly the first go-to about how you're going to be when you start to deteriorate. And hopefully once you have this awareness of your basic Enneagram type or that basic energy and you have the awareness of the levels of consciousness and the different uh, centers of intelligence and then today we're going to talk about wings, hopefully you begin to develop a compassion not only for yourself but also for others. I think that's a good point, Erica, because uh, oftentimes we look at people as just a means to an end or a finished product. And we fail to realize that people carry with them their own stuff and they're not finished. They're in the process of growth as well. And it helps us to be a whole lot more compassionate on them and, you know, really on ourselves. We forget to be compassionate with ourselves. And I need a lot of compassion because <laughs> I still have a lot of, a lot of uh, growth to work through. So getting back to wings, why don't you give us just a basic uh, opening to somebody who knows nothing about the Enneagram. Okay. What, is a, what is a wings? Okay, well, you have the nine energies of the Enneagram, one through nine. Nine is at the top, and to the right of nine you have one, and you go all the way around this clock, so to speak, uh, until you reach nine again. So you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. We've described what the egos are of each of these energies in previous podcasts, but they are explained in various books. They are explained in my book, which is called Becoming Conscious, The Enneagram's Forgotten Passageway, and also a book by uh, my friend Don Rizzo and Russ Hudson um, called The Wisdom of the Enneagram. And before that, uh, my friend Don Rizzo had written numerous books on the Enneagram, which have to do with personality and the constructs of understanding the Enneagram. There are various other books out there by uh, other uh, masters, such as Helen Palmer, who uh, writes about love and work in the Enneagram and also who does a lot of um, 
correlation between the Enneagram and uh, uh, the the tests for um, psychological well-being. So she's very interesting to read. There are many, many others. Uh, I would just I was just giving you a few right there. Great. So, so those are great reference books to mm-hmm. go to if you have questions about what type you are yes. and, and information about that type. Yes, absolutely. All of them speak about the wings. There is a, a variance uh, of uh, take on the our, uh, the wing theory. There are two basic um, uh, takes on it. Some teachers teach that we have only one wing. And other teachers teach that we have two wings. I um, come from the old school, which uh, is straight from uh, the SAT group run by Claudia Nerano um, at Esalen in the uh, early 70s, late 60s, in which uh, Father Robert Oakes was a participant who taught my teacher, Patrick O'Leary. And um, uh, those uh, that comes through the Jesuits, uh, and then later I studied with my friend Don Rizzo, who uh, we collaborated together and taught um, the Enneagram to medical students uh, in the 90s. But the, the major thing about wings is that we usually have, according to my teaching and how I was taught and the original teaching, that the Enneagram has two wings, one on both either side of your ego type. For example, there again, if you're a six, you have a seven wing and you have a five wing, meaning that these are auxiliary ways of moving in the world for you. Um, and your, your wings can be both dominant and very heavy, uh, one can be not dominant and one can be very submissive or latent. Um, and you can have two latent wings or two non-dominant wings. Um, but uh, these nevertheless are aspects of your uh, ego type. And they are alternative ways of moving in the world. These also integrate and disintegrate. So that means there's a lot going on. Well, the Enneagram is very fluid. Yes. And, you know, often we'll, we'll have somebody who mm-hmm. is, tro- they, they can't decide between two numbers. You know, mm-hmm. I think I could either be a five or a six. Well, often that may be because they're one of those numbers and they have a very dominant wing right. that's right. the other number. Yes. For example, there could be a, let's say there's a four. Fours say to the world, I'm special, I'm unique. That's what their ego says to the world. Um, On either side of them, they have a three, and they have a five. The three says to the world, I'm successful. The five says to the world, I am wise. Now, a four who has two dominant wings will be someone who's special and be successful with that or try to be. And sometimes even look and act like a description of a three in one of the uh, the books on the Enneagram. Likewise, the four can be very bookish and very wise and very academically and scholarly centered and can almost look 
like an egotype five. And they can express their fourness uniquely through the wise person of their egotype five wing, and they can express their successful person at the same time. Okay, that that brings up a good question. So if you have somebody who has two dominant wings, they can lean into the energies of both of those wings constantly? Constantly. Sometimes, uh, for example, if someone's in college and maybe they have set out to study a certain thing, they may let go of their accomplishment aspect for their three-wing and accentuate their five-wing because they're working on a degree. However, they can bring the success from the three into that by capturing honors for their degree and be given a claim for being, uh, you know, one of the magna cum laude or an honor student in graduation. So this really further explains why each person's so unique because you can have maybe that same ego type four Mm -hmm. with very non-dominant wings both of them being very non-dominant is that correct that's correct i mean they can be we um you can call it um an an unflapped wing (laughs) or you can call it a wing that is not you know being used for some reason it's uh remains in the background because somebody is so focused laser focused on the fixation of their type Uh, nevertheless that wing is there and usually if it isn't if a wing has not been apparent in the first part of life it is apparent in the second part of life when people are looking for alternative strategies to move in the world after the critical mass of suffering has been reached in the egotype level. Right. And so how do you know, how does one determine their wing if they have one, if it's dominant or non-dominant? I mean, how do you go about figuring that out? That's a very good question. And uh, you mentioned one way uh, at the, uh, just a little while ago, and that is if sometimes you're wondering whether you're a two or a three or a five or a six or a, a you know a seven, eight or nine and some 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 types in a row, and you've scored very highly on these tests in a, a, a type that is next to you. Uh, or some types that are next to you, uh, that's a way to ascertain if the wing is, uh, if, 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 if you have an affinity for that type of, of ego type. Then what you do is you look at, you ask yourself, when do I act like a, for example, a five? If I'm a six and I may have a five wing, when is it that I act like a five? Do I ever... Uh, close the door to my home and go into deep study? Am I ever um, um, given to deep reflection and don't get out of it easily? Uh, Do I contemplate a lot? Am I into great amounts of meditation and introspection? When do I stop being a team player so much and become much more of a loner and an introvert to gain energy to go back into the group that the six is so enamored of? So um, once you do an inner inventory of 
how it is and when it is that you act like the characteristics of a certain possible wing, then you will be able to kind of do a checklist of, yes, this is applicable to me. I either do this or I want to do these things, and I'm not allowing myself to do them. Interesting. Or that same six might say, I find that I'm much more playful Mm -hmm. and that I have many, many interests and often start a lot of projects that I don't finish. And that might be something that is more uh, leaning towards that seven Seven energy wing. And uh, so so you're saying that, you know, a lot of people are very into taking the tests that are on the Internet. How effective do you think those tests are? Well, I think it's – it's dubious at best. Um, first of all, uh, I do like it that there are inventories out there because it's a it's a good place to start, mm-hmm. and it helps you be familiar with certain hot spots on the enneagram uh, that you score high on. That would be those would be good places for you to look for your truth. Um, I think that the enneagram is best uh, um, the the inventory is best uh, taken um, by with with a community of people who uh, you can talk about your scores with and get feedback from them about how it is you really act and what it is that they feel you're really motivated by uh, how they've experienced your energy you know in the ego we're very blind to ourselves and as a psychologist, I give inventories like the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory and the Milan Clinical Multiaxial Inventory uh, daily. And I realize how many people lie to themselves when they take these tests. Mm-hmm. And because of that, there are lie scales built in to all good tests with good scientific face validity. Um, and those those lie scales are not in any of, to my knowledge, the Enneagram inventories. Um, and uh, if we're taking one of these inventories in our ego state, we're looking through a veil at ourselves. And is the information we're putting on that test accurate? Well, and we could be taking the test in the middle of a crisis yes. when we're displaying certain behaviors we don't normally display. Yes, absolutely. We could be taking the inventory to a certain phase of life where yes. we really are completely different than mm-hmm. we were in our major ego fixation, which is what age? Well, I think that, well, you know, the ego really ties us up beginning um, in the Freudian stage. Uh, the, it's called the Oedipal stage. Um, which we're looking at maybe four, five, six. That's when guilt comes into the picture, shame comes into the picture, and there is a a need for the little child to have a cover-up. Well, uh, the seeds of that cover-up had been planted way before, and that is the ego. So you're going to get your ego by five years old pretty much, uh, and into the teens, we're experimenting on what flavor of the ego mm-hmm. that we're gonna we're gonna have, and that's a very stressful time—a time of storm and stress 
adolescence because the ego is so new still and it works with certain people and it doesn't work with others and so we're honing it out. So by the time the Ericksonian stage of uh, intimacy versus isolation is reached, which is late teens, early 20s, you've pretty much got... uh, an ego that has solidified. And because that is what you use at times to achieve intimacy with another human being. You're looking for an ego match. What we don't know is love is really struck because there's a soul match underneath. It isn't just the egos that we're matching. But to take this on, I believe that we're very much in our egos in the 20s and very much into the 30s and um, it's usually at the end of the 30s that people's lives begin to unravel. Now I'm not saying that it doesn't happen sooner. For a lot of people illnesses, deaths, tragedies, other shock points occur that awaken people out of the ego and the veil is torn just instantaneously Um, and uh, consciousness comes in. Uh, But by and large, uh, most people, uh, uh, the the suffering mounts uh, till about the late 30s and that's when people are beginning to look for an alternative other than just the ego strategy for how their lives are going to go. And so for the second half of life, people are usually into some hybrid of ego and another way of looking at life. Which would affect taking these personality tests. I do. I believe it does very much. That's why I am... My, the test in my book is actually a test of ego because what we want is the ego type, right? Right. So let's call it for what it is. I want you to take this test like you were between 18 and 28 and answer them in the height of your ego so we can get a clear reading, if you're going to be honest, mm-hmm. and we can get a clear reading on what your ego type would be. Um, and uh, that's the best way, in my opinion, to get it done. Right. But it, and, and so that's the best way to do it, but it still fails sometimes. Yes, because even our egos trick us. Right. So we had a lady here at the conference this weekend mm-hmm. in the fog up here on this dissected plateau. And she, for the number of years that she's been studying the Enneagram, believed that she was an ego type too. And when she came to this conference Mm -hmm. and experienced the community and the group work through the dialogue with other experienced uh, fellow seekers, very quickly realized that she was not a dominant ego type two, but she was actually an ego type one with a very, very, very strong two wing. And she said just really within an hour of group work, her whole life began to become clearer to her. Oh, wow. Wow. Which part of life was she in? Second half of life, uh, most likely over 50. Yeah. And I didn't ask her age uh, because that's rude to do in the South. Yeah. But um, probably second half of life and had been studying the Enneagram for a long time. Wow. And, And so reading the books and taking the tests often 
isn't enough to really understand the Enneagram and to break open some of these codes. That's why I like our conferences, because what we do is we break people up into ego-type groups with a trained leader. And they can come and, you know, for a couple of three days, really sit with people and do some um, introspection and get some feedback with other people who've walked that walk. And that's the real validity test. It is. And when you've gone years and years thinking you're a certain ego type, I'm sure a lot of things don't make sense. Right. Right. And then you discover, oh, okay, so I'm an ego type one. Now this totally makes sense because when you follow the arrow towards your integration, Mm -hmm. that makes sense. And when you follow that area to disintegration, that makes sense. The wings begin to make sense. Yes. So it's an important it's an important thing to understand mm-hmm. properly, really. It, it really is. And then you've got the other nuances of subtypes. That's why the deeper understanding of the Enneagram is almost essential if you're going to really learn what your compulsion is, what your ego fixation is. You've got to see these nuances which really can lead you to a much more, a much different conclusion about what even your ego type really is. Right. And, and really, you know, the purpose of doing this work is so that we can, ha- we can increase our awareness and our consciousness, mm-hmm. right, Absolutely. to do that work for personal growth that helps move us away, or it actually doesn't help us move us away. It helps us move through our suffering. It really does. And if if I could go back to the wing theory one moment, Erica, to uh, say uh, another thing, and that is that we really are a combination in our ego of these two wings. It's amazing. Um, for example, let's take nine. The two wings of the nine are the eight and the one. So... You've got a nine, and let's say that those two wings, eight and one, are both very dominant. Well, this nine is somebody who, though he is uh, avoiding conflict and though he is seeking peace, he or she is very, very apt to understand the right way to go, the right decision to make. He or she is very likely to have the gift of discernment that ones typically have and a very acute sense of what the right path to take would be in a dilemma. And this can be used in helping people to reach their own peaceful states because remember, nines are wonderful negotiators and arbitrators because they see all sides. But this nine in particular with a dominant one wing has the added benefit of being able to guide people whom he's making peace with with a great sense of right versus wrong. How would that nine look if they had a dominant eight wing or what might they look like? Well, also with the dominant eight wing, even with their dominant one wing, they would have great leadership and capacities to transact power and the ability to um, cut through what would bog others down and move people forward. 
Now, this would especially make that nine ego type very effective because they are going to have an auxiliary power house of someone who has movement and energy to them which counteracts there would be complacency if they had a non-dominant eight wing. So a nine who might normally become complacent when they're overwhelmed, if they had a dominant eight wing, they could lean into that energy and make decisions a little bit more quickly and be able to direct and move through a project, take action. Yes, it counteracts the tendency towards nines to be very slow, to be reticent, to take control over situations. All the nines want to defer. But that eight wing of theirs is accessed for movement, power, and to enact the virtue of the nine, which is diligence. So these are power packs on either side of us. That's why I ask for people, hey, if you've got a sleepy wing, wake it up. You need both of them because you are a combination of both of them. And you wake it up through awareness? And through spiritual practice. Okay. Through getting to know other people whose ego types are your wing. Mm -hmm. And through accessing their energy, through, if you're a nine, nines are great at merging, Mm -hmm. they can access uh, the eight's energy of a friend they know and pick up on that and learn how through just empathic skills to begin to pick up the traits of their wings. So if somebody says, gosh, I wish I wasn't so complacent, there's hope. There's great hope. And if somebody says, I don't have the capacity for such and such because I'm just a three or I'm just a two or whatever, look to your wing because that wing just may have the capacity you've overlooked. Great. Well, I want to thank you for talking to us today about wings. And I know that on our next podcast, we will be discussing... The arrows and arrow theory, which is really one of the most uh, pivotal and uh, integral parts of Enneagram work because if one has a misunderstanding of arrows and not a clear understanding of what they mean and the inner flow of the Enneagram, they're not going to be able to benefit. So if, if you are listening to this podcast, I think what he just said is you don't want to miss the next one. No, you don't. Well, thank you for joining us today, Dr. Howell, and we just invite our listeners to come back next week. And thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Erica. It's been great. Great. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for being with us today. Check out our website at www.theicb.org. That's T-H-E-I-C-B dot O-R-G. If you have questions you would like to have answered on this podcast, just email us at the address on our website, theicb.org, under Contacts. And if you would like to attend one of the conferences or other events of the Institute for Conscious Being, you will find these presentations on our website under Events.